we as a culture get so much of our quote information from story whether it's on netflix or through series or movies or 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 books and i personally come down very much on the factual accuracy side of the equation hello and welcome to the right question a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the american west and beyond Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, and this is a TWQ mini-episode. Today I'm chatting with novelist Alex Christie, author of The Shining Mountains, which centers a young Scotsman, Angus MacDonald, who's contracted to British masters to trade for fur. But the world he discovers is far beyond even a Highlander's wildest imagination. The Rocky Mountain West of 1838 will soon be torn apart by competing claims between British fur traders, American settlers, and the native peoples who have lived for millennia in the valleys and plateaus of the Shining Mountains' western slopes. Alex Christie grew up in California, Montana, and British Columbia. She's a prize-winning journalist and author of novels, reportage, and short stories. She currently lives in California, where she covers culture for The Economist, prints on a letterpress, and swims in San Francisco Bay. Alex, thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome to The Right Question. It's a pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks. I'm going to just jump right into your novel. Alex, who were Duncan and Angus MacDonald? Well, Angus MacDonald was my great, great, great uncle. He was a Scottish Highlander and a fur trader for the Hudson's Bay Company in the mid to late 19th century. He came over from Scotland in 1838 and joined the company. And like very many men of his generation and of the fur trade, he married a native woman, an indigenous woman from the Nez Perce tribe named Catherine Baptiste. And she and he had a fantastic long marriage and a great love story and had many children, one of whom was Duncan MacDonald, who it turned out became a really important person in recording Montana history. He was the first person to write a series of newspaper accounts of a so-called Indian War from the native perspective. Uh, He wrote reports for the Deer Lodge paper, the New Northwest in 1878, uh, about the Nez Perce War, which his entire extended family was involved with. What's the appeal to you in immersing yourself in history and true stories and then crafting fictional narratives? Um, And what drew you to this particular story? It sounds like you have a very personal uh, attachment to it, but like you said, is also a love story. Uh, I'm wondering what drew you to write this novel? Well, it's interesting because I never expected to write historical fiction. I'm a fiction writer. I got a master's of fine arts um, in my mid-career, but I trained as a journalist. I've been a newspaper reporter my entire life. And so for me, it's really about history and discovering stories that haven't been told before and wanting to bring them to the fore. And that was the case with the Gutenberg story, which I happened to be a letterpress printer and it fascinated me. Um, And the same is true with The Shining Mountains. What I try to do is find the true historical events and situations and stories and then imagine who the people were and the choices that they made within that reality. As you said, they were my family. It's my direct 
relatives. And through this process of researching and learning, I was able to meet all of my relatives on the, uh, my cousins on the Flathead Reservation, which was this incredible gift um, and really a beautiful experience over the last seven years of, of learning about the indigenous history of this country, which very few of us learned in school. Um, so that was my my impetus for doing it was that I had heard about our family history in the fur trade. I'm in Canada right now, and my Canadian ancestors, who were all the McDonalds, they they knew about Archibald, who was Angus's great uncle, who was who founded Fort Colville on the Columbia River. And but nobody really knew about Angus and Catherine and the extended Montana clan uh, until my younger brother discovered Duncan's dispatches in the New Northwest, and and he he brought them to me and said, "Hey, here's your next novel." You said you met your cousins on the Flathead Reservation. How, did you know about them prior to this research and this and beginning this novel? This was a this was not only the experience of drafting and creating the story, but also finding family. That's um, an enormous thing, yeah. It, it was extraordinary, and I, I've I've said it before, and I've written some essays about how enriching it has been to meet this other half of my family. And what happened is really, I just showed up. I was living in Europe at the time, and I, and I wrote to Joe McDonald, the founder of Salish Kootenai College, who is you know a very prominent person in Montana, and explained who I was, and got his phone number, and and pitched up one day in Ronan and said hi, you know, and he was unfailing generous and welcoming and he got on the phone and he called all the family and said come on down you know we have this cousin here from England and so I think for them uh, it was also really wonderful to learn more about the Scottish side of the family there had been a historian who came to Montana in the 90s who had written a very deeply researched scholarly piece a book called Scottish Highlanders Indian peoples about the Macdonald uh, Montana McDonald family. Um, so they knew about it, but I was able to bring even more detailed knowledge about Angus and Duncan, his brother, who is my direct ancestor. So, you know, over three or four visits over a number of years, we have all become closer. And I'm really honored to say that they embraced the project. And really importantly, they advised me on how to approach the tribes for formal request to do the research and to write the story, because I really wanted to be very, very respectful and careful about not appropriating culture where it wasn't mine to to write about. So Joe particularly and Wyman McDonald, his his cousin, recommended that I go to, to each tribe's cultural committee and, and do a formal presentation and a formal request, which I did. And then I each in each tribe, in the Nez Perce tribe and in the Salish Kootenai tribe, there was an elder who read the manuscript. Um, and in, in on the Flathead, it happened to be a, a direct descendant of Catherine and, and Angus's who read it, who has since passed. But, you know, for me, it was really important to respect the cultural integrity of the situation. Yeah, one of my questions was going to be, and I think you maybe partly answered it or or perhaps fully answered it, but how you view or carry the responsibility of writing fiction based on true events, how you consider the ethics of historical fiction and the processes that ultimately drive what are sometimes very delicate stories, especially across cultures, like you've said. 
It's a really important question, especially now because we as a culture get so much of our quote information from story, whether it's on Netflix or through series or movies or, or, or books. And I personally come down very much on the factual accuracy side of the equation, as I said, as a journalist. But I also really believe that we have a an ethical responsibility to tell the truth, knowing that so many readers will take it as the truth. And, you know, one of the things I found so interesting in this story is that there's plenty of real life drama that actually occurred that you can document that you don't need to invent situations. You know, what, what I did in this situation was try to place characters at places they may or may not have been, but the actual situations were real and documented. You know, there were, for example, uh, when the Nez Perce were fleeing across the Lolo Pass, Duncan may or may not have been at some of these events, um, but I wanted him, I wanted to place him there. And interestingly, in the historical record, there's discussion about was he there, was he not there? No one really knows. And as Perse historian says, yes, I think he was at that council. The other people say, mm, not so sure. So you have a little latitude, I think, as a fiction writer to, to craft the emotional story of your characters within this context. But I think the context needs to be as accurate as possible. Absolutely. And for listeners who haven't yet read The Shining Mountains, they will soon find out once they open the book that this is a character-based novel. While there is obviously so much historical context and, and physical context, the environment that you're writing about is Oregon-Washington Territory, Montana, um, it is character-based. It is so character-driven. So they will soon find that out, that these characters really create the richness that is this novel. I'm curious, you know, if we're diving further into your research process, you know, if you're doing your due diligence or fulfilling your obligation as a writer of history to represent different cultures and a different time as accurately as you possibly can, how do you reconcile the notion, um, and this is one I presume, that much of the written history of the United States is a history written by the settlers, right, and not the indigenous peoples who have been here for millennia? So how do you reconcile that when you're basing so much of your research on historical artifact? It sounds like conversations with the tribes were really important to you, but I'd be curious to know further about that process. It's an absolutely important point, and it's also the case that the voices that we have preserved in the archives are almost uniformly white men and also not women. So I was fortunate and I think it's really, again, a question of the process of immersion that there have been through the early part of the settlement of the United States, there've always been anthropologists who have gone and studied different groups and the, in particular the Nez Perce, but I'm sure many other tribes, there have been collections of their oral tales published there's lots of material in the archives about, written of course by white observers, but told stories told over and over of their history. And particularly in the Nez, case of the Nez Perce, there was a fellow in Eastern Washington named Luculus McWhorter, who in 1920 or so interviewed all of the survivors of the Nez Perce War and, and wrote very specifically from their point of view, their story, you know, and there are documents. There's another fantastic document called I Will Tell of My War Story that is a pictorial representation of the war. So that existed. And then 
I was also fortunate that in the 1960s, I think a woman came from the subcontinent of India to the Nez Perce uh, reservation and interviewed the women about their life ways. And there's this fantastic book about Nez Perce women and the way that they live and the the seasons and the the process of gathering food. And it was very specific because in fiction, you really need to have specifics about what people eat, you know, how they how they deal with their relationship troubles, whatever it might be. And um, so that was really, really lucky. And then the other thing was um, Angus was very prominent. He wrote a lot of letters, most of which are in Helena in the Montana Historical Society. And he also was a, a completely kind of crazy character. He, they called him a minor poet and a major carouser. He wrote bad poetry. I would consider it very florid Victorian poetry in his Hudson Bay ledger books. And he also wrote down stories of his experiences. And the most important one is that his wife, Catherine, when she was about 15, went on this year-long journey down the Colorado with her father. And he took it down in his ledger. And of course, it's in his voice, but it's still her telling her own story. Um, and it was published in the 1930s in a historical magazine in Oregon. So I really feel at a deep level, we're all human. And I am a mother, and I am a wife, and I am a woman. And I could understand or imagine what she might have felt in these circumstances. And I think that helps me to get over the lack of concrete uh, resources or concrete evidence. I love that. I think that's so important. And you said earlier that that people are getting a lot of their information from stories. And I think you're right. I think storytelling is an imperative. It is a it is a important part of the way that we understand our place in the world and, and we understand other people's place in the world. And I'm reminded of Deborah Magpie Erling's uh, blurb for this book, actually. She says, I admire the Shining Mountains for its vivid and emotionally rendered characters, its magnificent landscape, and how Christie captures the extraordinary power of living story. I loved that phrase, living story. How do you see your novel embodying that idea? And, and how do you think of that phrase in general? I think story is everything. I think it's how humans have made sense of their existence from the beginning. So that to me was a really important part of this novel too, you know, that that we would have pieces of the narrative that came in as Duncan's dispatches or as newspaper reports because everybody is telling a story of the past. And it was something that grew on me as I wrote and learned was how little of this story we have been told from the na native point of view, but also from the Hudson's Bay point of view. You know, people who live in the Northwest in the Rocky Mountain area really don't know about the fur trade period. And I was astounded. It was so multicultural and it was based on trade, which is not to say that it wasn't exploitative, but at the same time, there was mutual respect between the parties. There was love, there was intermarriage. These descendants of these families still live in the region um, five, six generations later. So I just feel that we need as a culture to recognize the multiplicity of our stories. And I really, I felt really politically compelled in a way to tell this story from this point of view because it hasn't been heard before. From this, we know a lot about the West from the settler point of view, but very rarely do we hear it from this deeper history that preceded American conquest. And especially right now when history is so contested, I felt 
really that it's important that we think about who was here before us and how they experienced westward expansion. I think at the beginning of the book, you have Angus kind of, I don't know if he's saying it out loud, but I think he's just, it's like, an, it's his narrative in his head, but he's thinking to himself how big this this trading company is. It covers, I don't I, I don't remember the exact, uh, the statistics of how big it was. How big did the Hudson's Bay Company actually stretch? Or how far? Well, interesting that you ask, interesting that you ask that, because that's exactly the excerpt that I was planning on reading. Love it. Let's do that. Let's dive Shall into the novel. Shall we just dive right into yeah, that? Yeah, let's do that. Wonderful. Yeah. The Hudson's Bay Company covers this continent like the heather that blankets Strathconnen in summer, Angus writes to his family. From that eponymous bay clear across 3,000 miles of Rupert's land, then plunging south to where he is, in the last grinding molar of the Rockies, which the native people call the Shining Mountains. The Oregon country his masters call this whole southwestern chunk, encompassing the drainages of the Columbia and Clearwater and Snake, west of the Continental Divide. He doesn't know for sure, but he thinks there are about 200 forts and depots across North America where the baymen meet the natives and buy fur. The operation is vast. It boggles his mind. Great Uncle Archibald has been with the company since 1819, up and down the Pacific coast. Now Angus, too, has been promoted from ordinary servant to postmaster the next rung up. They run it like the army, he writes, which makes sense for a firm that covers one-tenth of the Earth's surface. The company he reluctantly signed on to is astonishingly powerful and ancient in its way. HBC, here before Christ, as the old wags say. If they spy the pride between the lines, he doesn't mind. For the first time in his 21 years, he's part of something large and grand and endlessly exciting. The business works like this, he goes on. Twice a year, the traders buy, swapping English goods for furs. The men who trap the furs are mainly Métis, mixed blood, Indians and some whites, who are freemen or employees of the HBC or rival Yankee firms. They bear these pelts down from the mountains to the baymen in their lonely posts or meet them at the rowdy mountain rendezvous. Each trapper swaps them for a load of goods, flour, cloth, nails, blades, weapons, anything that man, not nature, can devise, and climbs back to the wild. And then the traders, Angus now among them, pack the furs out to the coast in long brigades. He and Captain Grant, for instance, take them overland each spring and fall along the snake, a blasted, otherworldly territory pitted as the moon. He works with several others, Walker and a Métis boy who Grant just calls Young George. Their string of laden mules follows the river to Fort Boisé, then turns north toward Fort Nez Perce, 500 miles north on the Columbia. From there, the bales are shipped downriver and across the sea to the hatters and haberdashers of London, who prize above all else the felted pelt of western beaver. Across this continent, scores of other traders are doing just the same. You said that you were compelled to write this story from this perspective or these particular perspectives because it's one not seen in the history books. It's one not often written about. I'm wondering more broadly what you were seeking or attempting to understand when you conceived of the Shining Mountains and how, I mean, now that it's been published, I'm wondering what has surprised you most about its making. 
That's an excellent question. I think initially I really only wanted to write a family story. You know, I was fascinated. They were very colorful. It's a great yarn. You know, it covers a whole swath of the West, which I know and love intimately. I spent all of my childhood driving up and down uh, Highway 97 to the Okanagan Valley, and I had no real idea that my ancestor had been treading these same mountains and valleys. And it was really meaningful to me just to write that from a family perspective. But I became, I would say, politicized a little bit um, through the research when I understood how little of it I had been taught. And I also felt that it was really important, and I tried in the book, to show the exact steps by which the Native people were dispossessed, so that we all know that they were, we all know that they ended up on reservations, but we don't know how that happened specifically. So I felt that, you know, here with Isaac Stevens and these particular treaties, I could really show step-by-step step how it happened. So it became more of an educational kind of mission for me to share the story of how, how we got to where we are. Um, I think that's really, it, it changed for me sort of in the writing. Initially, I was only going to write Duncan's story. And then I realized, oh my goodness, his parents were so fascinating. And there was a lot of lore about them too. Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. I so appreciate you being here. It was a real pleasure, Lauren. That was novelist Alex Christie, author of The Shining Mountains, out now from High Road Books, an imprint of the University of New Mexico Press. You can find more information about Alex at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Alex will be touring the novel throughout Montana during the month of June. She'll be in Hamilton at Chapter One Bookstore on Monday, June 12th, in Ronan on the 14th at the Salish Kootenai College, in St. Ignatius at the Fort Connor Rendezvous on the 17th and 18th, in Missoula at Fact and Fiction on the 19th, and she'll be in Bozeman at the Isle of Books on the 22nd. You've been listening to a TWQ mini-episode. This show was produced by me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell. Our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.